You need to loosen up and right. have a few drinks and it'll all go better. So for Jackson Pollock, who was a lifelong alcoholic, to being told that it was okay for him to keep drinking was kind of music to his ears because he didn't want to stop drinking. I'm Ben Davis, and this is The Art Angle, the podcast from Artnet News where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest stories down to earth. I was like reborn, the art critic Clement Greenberg once remembered. It was the most important event in my life. The event in question was his encounter with Sullivanian therapy. His biographer, Florence Rubenfeld, once wrote that it would not overstretch the facts to say that after the late 50s, Clem's comportment in the art world can only be understood in this context. Yet despite how large Clement Greenberg looms as the most impactful U.S. critic of the 20th century, few people know this history. A new book called The Sullivanians, Sex, Psychotherapy, and the Wildlife of an American Commune is raising the subject once again, as literally one chapter in a much larger narrative. A lot of other people shared Greenberg's experience of rebirth. From the 1950s to the 1980s, hundreds of bright, educated people looking for purpose and community passed through the doors of the Sullivan Institute for Research in Psychoanalysis on New York's Upper West Side. Formulated into a doctrine by Saul Newton and Jane Pierce, this experimental therapy promised to liberate devotees from both creative and sexual repression. In the course of the 60s, it would evolve into a multi-decade experiment in polyamory, collective living, and group child-rearing, before eventually coming apart in scandal when the inner workings of the group were exposed in the 1980s. The author of The Sullivanians, Alexander Stilla, talked with me recently both about the Sullivan Institute's contact with U.S. art at mid-century and, more importantly, about the larger story of what this group became and what it represents now. Alexander Stilla, thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. So you teach journalism and you've written about many things. You've written about Silvio Berlusconi, you've written about the Mafia, how did you come up on this particular story, the story of the Sylvanians? Um, very randomly. I've lived for three or four decades on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, and I simply heard from friends about people they knew who had been part of this unusual group, people they'd gotten close to and realized that they had a very unusual past and had been part of this group that had been highly secretive that had formed a kind of utopian alternate society on the Upper West Side dedicated to the kind of principles of communism, free love, community, fellowship. And I thought this is really interesting. I knew nothing about this. This was a community that was essentially hidden in plain sight, a community of nearly 300 people, so rather substantial, and only a few blocks from where I was living. And so I thought it would be really, really interesting if I could get people who'd been in this group to talk to me about their experience. And so I just started kind of looking into it and poking around. And that's how I got started with it. And it turns out to be there's a fascinating slice of New York history. We've already mentioned the name Sullivan, but just to give people an idea, who was Harry Stack Sullivan and what did he bring to psychoanalysis? So Harry Stack Sullivan was a very well-known neo-Freudian psychotherapist, psychiatrist, who operated in the first half of the 20th century. He was part of a generation of therapists who developed what's known as interpersonal psychotherapy. Mm -hmm. And their kind of starting premise was, whereas Freud focused almost entirely on the early life of his patients and their relationship to their family and the kind of internal psychodynamics of their life, their Oedipus complex, their relationship with their parents, ego, superego, id, and so on. Sullivan believed that people continued to grow into their adult years, that you needed to look at all the relationships in a person's life and not just their early life and their family life, and that people went through phases of their life and that people could, in adult life, recoup some of the phases of their early life. So as small children, we engage in parallel play. When we reach pre-adolescence, Sullivan noticed that People often form very, very close bonds with 
friends of the same sex before they got involved in sexual relations that he referred to as chumship, and that those relationships were very important. Often, some people didn't get to enjoy those kind of close same-sex friendships, either because they were isolated by their circumstances, or in some cases, families were limiting of the kind of social life that a young child could have. That was kind of where he began. And I should point out that Sullivan died in 1949, which is several years before these other therapists that I wrote about formed their own institute in Sullivan's name. So Sullivan had nothing to do with it. And they took those ideas of growth through human contact to a whole nother level. Yeah, it starts out as being this story about, yeah, exploring psychology and new forms of therapy, the therapeutic revolution of the early 20th century. And it becomes something very different. And even though it's called the Sullivan Institute, I mean, some people call it in your book, Newtonian therapy, because really the big figure of your book is Saul Newton. So who is Saul Newton? Saul Newton was a Canadian-born Jewish man who was born under the name of Cohen who moves to the United States where he does his college years at the University of Wisconsin. He moves to Chicago, becomes a communist labor organizer, and pursues a degree in social work at the University of Chicago. In 1937, he goes off and fights with the Lincoln Brigade in Spain. That's the anti-fascist resistance to Franco's right-wing revolution in Spain, which puts him in a very sort of elite category in terms of left-wing American politics. There were only a few thousand Americans that went and did that, and they had a lot of credibility with people yeah. on the left because they were prepared to put it on the line when other people... It's what they used to call a uh, premature anti-fascist, is what they called them later. You know, they were anti-fascist before it was cool. So after the war, he then also fights in World War II. But after World War II, he moves to New York, and he goes to work at something called the William Allenson White Institute. And the White Institute is the institute that Harry Stack Sullivan helped to found in New York City, together with other very prominent neo-Freudian psychiatrists, people like Eric Fromm, Frieda Fromm-Reichman, and a woman named Clara Thompson. Saul Newton's third wife is working as a secretary to the director of the White Institute, and Saul Newton is working in the bursar's office, essentially doing a very low-level clerical job. But in the course of working at the White Institute and presumably listening to lectures of prominent psychotherapists, he decides, I think I should be a psychotherapist. This looks like a pretty cool thing to do. And he meets at the White Institute a woman named Jane Pierce, who is a trained medical doctor and has been trained in psychotherapy at the White Institute. He takes up romantically with Jane Pierce, dumps wife number three, and makes Jane Pierce wife number four. And at that point, they decide to go off on their own and break away from the White Institute. Harry Stack Sullivan is dead. The prospects for Saul Newton having no formal training in psychotherapy of ever becoming a psychotherapist at the White Institute is non-existent. He has no formal training, no degree. But his wife does have training and a degree, and she also inherited some money from her father who had died years earlier. So they buy a townhouse on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, and they put out their shingle of something called the Sullivan Institute. And the rules of psychotherapy are that anybody, regardless of whether or not they have a degree, can treat people if people are willing to pay them to listen to their problems. And so you don't need a degree. You only need a degree if you want to get reimbursed by an insurance company. So Saul Newton, even though he has no degree, is suddenly the director of his own psychoanalytic institute. And his wife gives him the credibility and the degrees to make it all possible. She is a, was, by all accounts, a quite dynamic person who was greatly admired by younger therapists at the White Institute. And several of them moved over with her to the newly formed Sullivan Institute that gets going in the mid-1950s. This is the period then when they're developing what becomes Sullivanianism, I guess. What are the tenets that emerge from this period? So the basic principles for them was they took the idea from Sullivan that people grew from their exposure to other people. And they then concluded from that 
that by definition, the nuclear family was limiting and suffocating because, you know, you've got four people or five people sitting around the family dinner table night after night. Instead of circulating out in the world, parents tended to be controlling and jealous of their children, limiting their possibilities. People needed to get out and break with their family, so that was one thing. And the other, using the same logic, monogamous marriage and monogamy generally was by definition limiting. You're stuck with one person for the rest of your life. If the idea is that exposure to multiple people is what makes you grow, then by definition, monogamy is a terrible idea. And it's important to remember that this is happening in the late 50s when there kind of are the beginning rumblings of a sexual revolution. Right, yeah. In 1957, the drug companies put in the application to the Federal Drug Administration to approve the birth control pill, which gets approved in 1960. And the thinking was that essentially our whole social and family relations for most of human history had been determined by the limits of biology. And so the fact that every time you had sex, you might potentially produce a child was threatening to a traditional patriarchal family relations. You didn't know whether your wife's child was your child and whether you should pass along your property to your wife's children. And so you created institutions of marital fidelity, male possessive jealousy, and all of the kind of restrictions that come along with that. And so suddenly with birth control, their thinking is we can actually rearrange family relations in ways that make people happy rather than simply are for the good of society. And so what if we were completely free and we separated sex from conception, sex from reproduction, sex from guilt, sex from possession, and sex was about intimacy and getting to know other people and growing as human beings. That was kind of their operating principle. One of the things I really love about your book is how you situate this therapeutic community against, yeah, what was happening in the 50s and the 60s. It's a specific set of beliefs that people were drawn to for specific reasons, but there's like a larger ferment going on. You know, this is the early beatnik period. You know, it's the rebel without a cause period, the beginnings of the sexual revolution and so on. And I think it becomes known as kind of a free love movement, but I find the stuff about chumship very touching in a way, you know, just the alienation of the 50s that people are coming from and this focus not just on sleeping with who you wanted, but developing strong friend ties. Friendship and chumship was huge in this movement. So one of the things that they did after the first years of practicing, they began to encourage their patients to live with each other in large group apartments on the Upper West Side. It's hard to imagine in today's world when real estate in New York is so impossibly expensive. But New York lost a million people during the 50s and 60s. Manhattan lost half a million people. So you had these large, beautifully built pre-war buildings on the Upper West Side that were being emptied. And suddenly you had these large apartments originally meant for big, well-to-do families and their maid suddenly inexpensive and available for students and the kind of people that would be in their early 20s getting into Sullivanian therapy. So they had these people move into these apartments and in some cases they might knock down a wall between two apartments and you suddenly had a commune of 10 people. But the idea, as you say, that was very appealing to people was this idea of you were a lonely 22-year-old graduate student moving to New York, knowing hardly anybody in a society that could be quite atomized and lonely. And suddenly you had all these people who were being told by their therapist, you need to go out and meet people, not just people you're sleeping with, but you make study dates, you make dates to hang out with uh, people of the same sex. A trademark, you know you're talking to a Sullivanian when they take up their uh, date book. Everybody had a calendar where they were just constantly making yeah, you were play required dates. To. And in the therapist's office, there were always notices up about, do you want to go in on a house share in the Hamptons? Do you want to be part of a men's group? Do you want to be part of a pottery class? Do you want to join a rock band? And so the patients were, what I think was very seductive for people is that you weren't just being given a script for an alternative life. You were being given an alternative life itself. 
So right. you were asked to join a community of people that became your close friends very quickly. And people talk about it as like some kind of magical moment happening upon the Sylvanians where suddenly you walk into this community and immediately your sex life is amazing and you just are overwhelmed with friends who want to hang out with you. They became known for their like incredible parties. In yeah, this time they had period. parties every weekend in the city. You know, one of the characters in my book was the novelist Richard Price, who right. was a insecure, uptight, 22-year-old, uh, starting graduate school, living with his parents in the Bronx, not very happy. And he starts therapy, and the therapist says, you don't need to listen to your parents. Why are you arguing with them? You're wasting your time. Do something else with your life. He goes to a Sullivanian party, and here it is, like 11 o'clock. He's like really impressed by this scene. Here are these guys living in this apartment, each with their own room. Women are coming and going. And a young woman comes up and says, do you have a date tonight? And he's thinking, a date? It's 11 o'clock at night. Isn't a date when you go to the movies with somebody? And instead, this woman wants to go home with him or take him home. And he thinks, my God, you know, the gates of heaven have opened up. You know, this isn't the way the world normally works. Normally, you have to be like pretending to want to marry somebody in order to have sex with them. I'm not used to a world that functions this way. And it's not only the women who want to sleep with me, but the guys are nice and they want to get together for dinner and get to know me. And he has a sense of this is instant community, instant friendship, instant sex. Great. And that's the way it was for some people for some period of time. Yeah, you mentioned Richard Price. There's like a tremendous cast of created characters in your book. The novelist Richard Price, choreographer and dancer Lucinda Childs, singer Judy Collins. There's a Steely Dan connection in there somewhere. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But because this is an art podcast, I want to focus for a second on the art connections, which were really significant. It can't be underestimated. One of the early patients of this group was the famous critic Clement Greenberg, who got into therapy in 1955. He was in his early 40s at this point, but began dating the painter Helen Frankenthaler a couple of years before that. And she's a recent college grad. Yeah, she had just graduated from Bennington, and she invites Clement Greenberg to attend a show that she's organized of Bennington painters. Greenberg goes, and they take up together and have an important relationship that lasts for a couple of years. And then Frankenthaler, at a certain point, decides to end the relationship. And Greenberg goes into a kind of crisis. And friends at the time describe him as kind of walking around as if he's in a sort of catatonic state. So they say, you need to get into therapy. And he sees a therapist who refers him to a young therapist named Ralph Klein. Ralph Klein was one of these early kind of protégés of Jane Pierce, who's moved over from the White Institute to form her own institute. And Greenberg immediately likes the therapist, immediately experiences what uh, psychoanalysis refers to as transference, where you have this great, great sense of identification with your therapist. And then August comes around, and the therapist, as you know, it's a sort of common cliche, New York therapists all go out to the Hamptons. That's exactly what Ralph Klein did, because Jane Pierce and Saul Newton had built a house out in Amagansett, near East Hampton. And Clement Greenberg decides... I can't be without my therapist for a whole month. I'm going out to the Hamptons. And Clement Greenberg was a close friend and a kind of ideological champion of Jackson Pollock and was used to being on very close terms with Jackson Pollock's wife, Lee Krasner. So Pollock arranges an invitation out to see the Pollocks in Springs. And unfortunately, in this period, Pollock has fallen off the wagon, is drinking very heavily, is an angry, abusive drunk, is tearing into his wife, Lee Krasner, on a daily basis. And Greenberg looks at this situation and says, these people are going to kill each other if we don't do something. So he calls his therapist and arranges for Lee to go see Jane Pierce, who is the kind of mentor, experienced therapist in this group. She's the mentor of Greenberg's own therapist, Ralph Klein. So funnily enough, Jackson Pollock, who's against the idea of Lee going into therapy, says, well, I'm coming too. And so all three of them get in a car and drive the few miles from where um, Pollock and Krasner live in Springs over to Barnes Landing, where the Sullivanians are, and they all participate in this thing. The result is that 
Pollock ends up in therapy with Ralph Klein, who is also Greenberg's therapist. And Lee Krasner has a session or two with Jane Pierce, but decides not to pursue that. But Pollock gets into this therapy and it becomes uh, a fixture in his life for the last year and however many months of his life. Yeah, I mean, I think people know and associate Jackson Pollock with a Jungian therapy, you know, this kind of deep reference to primal archetypes. I'm not sure that it's so widely known, his relationship with this other kind of Sullivanian therapy, which, you know, has a sort of a tragic dimension in his final years. For Pollock, it ends up being quite tragic in some sense, in that one of the peculiarities of Sullivanian therapy is that they actually thought the alcohol was a good thing for a patient. Right that alcohol was disinhibiting. It was a way of relieving anxiety. It was a perfectly reasonable thing. I interviewed many people who, even in the 1970s, were being told by their Sullivanian therapists, let's say they were struggling with a PhD dissertation. The therapist would say, well, are you drinking while you're writing? You should be. You need to loosen up and right. have a few drinks and it'll all go better. So for Jackson Pollock, who was a lifelong alcoholic, to being told that it was okay for him to keep drinking was kind of music to his ears because he didn't want to stop drinking. The other thing that they told him is, you know, apparently his sex life with his wife had dried up. So the therapist said, well, you should do something about that. You need to go out and live. You're holding yourself back. You know, get it on with other women. What's the problem? You need to be living more fully. If you want to become the fully creative person that you are, you need to live with all cylinders firing. So Pollock begins to make passes at women. He comes into the city every week uh, dutifully to go to his therapy. For a while, they had friends of Pollock's come and accompany him on the train so that he wouldn't start drinking in the Penn Station bar and he'd at least get to the therapy session without beginning to load up on drinks. He also had a very positive transference with Ralph Klein. Uh, he thinks Ralph Klein is great and brilliant. And Ralph Klein is telling him that his mother is a womb with a tomb. Essentially, your mother is death, and you need to break with your mother. Pollock was very close to his mother. And you need to get out and meet other women. And so Pollock, during these overnight visits to New York, would hang out at the Cedar Tavern, where he would you know, come in already roaring drunk and put on a huge scene. It became kind of a thing in the New York bohemian art world. And he would come in and start insulting people, breaking plates, you know, knocking over people's glasses, saying, what are you people? You think you're artists? You're not artists. You're shit. And by the end of the evening, he would be kind of morosely in a back booth, having cut up his hands on a piece of glass or a broken yeah. plate. And this was sort of the scene. But in one of these New York visits... He met a woman who was interested in getting involved with him, Ruth Kligman, and he starts an affair with Ruth Kligman, who's a very attractive, young, aspiring painter who has a kind of bohemian fantasy of being the consort of a famous artist. So the idea of being attached to Jackson Pollock, even in his very debilitated state, is appealing to her. And Lee Krasner eventually gets word of all of this and is very upset. She wants Jackson to break off his Sullivanian therapy, seeing that it's not doing him any good. She wants him to stop drinking, and she wants him to stop carrying on with Ruth Kligman. He refuses to do either of these things, and so Lee Krasner decides to get out of town and leaves the country and goes to Paris. And according to uh, Barbara Rose, the art critic who was very close to Lee Krasner and who sadly died several months ago, Barbara Rose's conviction that Pollock was planning on joining Lee Krasner in Paris. But in the meanwhile, he's carrying on with Ruth Kligman. And in August of uh, 1956, he invites Kligman out to Springs for a weekend. She comes out with a young friend of hers named Edith Metzger. And they're imagining a kind of, you know, fun weekend in the Hamptons, going to the beach and so on. And instead, they spend the afternoon watching Pollock drinking rather morosely, in a bar nearby. And they're going to go in the evening to a concert at a friend's house. And Pollock is so drunk that a policeman stops him on the way to the concert and says, you know, are you okay? What's going on? And Pollock says, I'm fine. Don't worry about it. 
They go to the place where the concert is being held. By this point, Pollock is really not feeling well, and they decide to go home. Edith Metzger at this point is really alarmed by the state that Pollock is in and doesn't think he should be driving and says, let's take a taxi home. And Ruth Krigman convinces her to get back in the car and to forget about the cab. And Pollock, who I think is enjoying scaring this young woman who is saying, you know, slow down, slow down, he instead speeds up and ends up crashing into a tree, killing himself and yeah. Edith Metzger, who are flown from the car. And Ruth Krigman survives. So Greenberg has his crisis in 55, over the breakup with Helen Frankenthaler, gets into Sylvanian therapy, plugs Pollock into it, and in 1956, you know, he has this car crash and dies. So I guess really the uh, Sylvanianism there is basically an enabling philosophy. Greenberg, interestingly, swore for the rest of his life by this therapy and said it completely yeah, turned, that's the interesting said it thing. completely turned my life around. It changed my whole deal. He said it's the most important event in my life is his meeting with Ralph Klein. Even after, you know, his his great disciple dies. Uh, but I think what accident. it did for Greenberg is that Greenberg, even though he was a famous art critic by his early 40s, was still very psychologically and financially dependent on his father. And so what the therapy did is said, you don't need this. Screw it. You don't need your father. You're fine on your own. And also, you don't want to be in a relationship of extreme emotional dependence as you were with Helen Frankenthaler, where you're devastated if it breaks up. Go out and you can sleep with all the women you want. And so in some sense, this was very liberating for Greenberg, uh, where he didn't have to take orders from his father and try to please his father. And he didn't have to conform to conventional ideas of family life. So he marries a young woman on the basis that they will have an open relationship, which they in fact go on and do. And Greenberg, in a sense, uh, becomes this super famous, incredibly influential critic who gets to live exactly as he sees fit. And so for him, he felt it worked very well. And he then got all of the artists that he championed, Kenneth Nolan, Jules Olitsky, Larry Poons, all went into celebrating therapy on the advice of Greenberg. I didn't realize that in his 40s, well after he had like made the career of Jackson Pollock, Clement Greenberg was still financially dependent on his own parents. And I did not realize that the entire second generation of the abstract movement is sort of defined by Sylvanianism. In your book, they talk about how like to get his approval in this time period, in the 60s, it was sort of a condition or a strong recommendation. Yeah, it was sort of a sign that you were really part of the inner circle. Yeah. And that somehow being admitted into Sullivanian therapy was a sign that you had what it took. You know, it was funny because, you know, Greenberg had two sort of power centers, obviously the New York art scene, but also Bennington became a big power center for him. He would go up and guest lecture and give critiques at Bennington. And he really brought in a lot of the people. It was already a strong art faculty before Greenberg, and it became even stronger. He brought in Jules Olitsky into their faculty, Anthony Caro, the sculptor. And people would like make fun of Anthony Caro because he wasn't quite prepared to leave his wife and carry on with other people. And the other artists in this thing thought that was very funny. Yeah, maybe talk a little bit about Jules Olitsky, who's like one yeah. of the people Greenberg championed as a successor to uh, Pollock yeah. and became a full Sullivanian in 1966 and broke up his family, essentially, to live in the Sullivanian way. It's a quite striking story. So in 1966, Jules Olitsky is teaching up at Bennington and undergoes some kind of psychological crisis. And Olitsky is threatening to kill himself. He's like locked inside of his studio. And outside of his studio door are his wife, Andy, Andrea Olitsky, and his young student girlfriend, a woman named Susan Kreil, who goes on to be a painter in her own right. She's a young painter at that time. And they're out there, you know, kind of negotiating with Olitsky, saying, don't do anything rash. And in the middle of this crisis, they call Clement Greenberg. 
And Greenberg kind of talks Olitsky down from the ledge and says, you know, don't be ridiculous, don't kill yourself. Come to New York, you need to get into therapy. And so Olitsky moves with his family. At that point, he has a wife and two children by two different marriages. They all move down to New York, as does his painter girlfriend, Susan Cryle. And within a short time, they're all living in separate apartments because the group was all about breaking up family. And Olitsky is then encouraged to, along with seeing his wife and his girlfriend, Susan, dating other people. And interestingly, at a certain point, Olitsky is, which is kind of funny when you think about Olitsky, is a color field painter who sprays paint onto canvases and stuff like that. He's doing life drawing, from, you know, drawing from life with a model on Sunday mornings with two or three other Sullivanian therapists um, and then having brunch with them. So it's so, he was really kind of embedded in this world. And um, when he eventually got tired of Sullivanian therapy and left it, he left his wife behind. Meanwhile, the therapist had convinced him and his wife to send their 10-year-old daughter away to boarding school. Yeah, that's quite a common story here. Yeah, which was what they did with kids. And then his older daughter remains in Sullivanian therapy for many, many years. So his family is really blown apart by this therapy, and half of it remain within the group even as he goes off and his life takes a different direction. So I guess I wanted to ask you, at this juncture, you know, a lot of these famous painters are men, and I think had one experience of this. Susan Cryle, who was his partner, also was part of Sullivan Institute experience. What was the experience of women in general in the group? I gather it was both liberating in some cases, but had a dark side in others. Well, it had the advantage that one thing they did have going for them is they felt that women's creative lives were every bit as important as men's. And so... For somebody like Susan Cryle, who is a young painter in her early 20s when she gets into therapy, her father, who is a well-known doctor, is telling her, don't be a painter, you're never going to amount to anything. And her Sullivanian therapist is saying, screw that, your father is just trying to hold you back. You need to focus on your painting. So in many cases, there were people that got into Sullivanian therapy, let's say they were young mothers in their 20s. And so... They were saying, you know, don't waste your time changing diapers. Put your kid in boarding school. You're bad for your kid. Your kid is bad for you. And you need to focus on your own growth and development. Have some fun. Have some sex. Finish that PhD you were thinking about pursuing or take a shot at being a writer or get into a painting class. You know, you want to explore your creativity. So in that sense, for women in the 50s and 60s, who felt confined to a traditional domestic role, Sullivanian therapy could be quite liberating and quite exciting. It allowed women who were maybe shy about uh, expressing their sexuality to go out and put themselves out there. You want to sleep with this guy or that guy? Go for it. Why shouldn't you take the initiative? Why are you waiting around for somebody to notice you? Um, so there were people who got a lot out of that. I think the problem came with the fact that everything was extremely codified. And so, right. you know, what somebody like Susan Cryle described is that you weren't supposed to spend any evening alone. You were always supposed to be socializing. Even if you weren't having a sex date with somebody, you were supposed to have a chumship date with somebody of your own sex where you come to dinner with your toothbrush and a spare set of clothes and you'd stay over at the night and you'd chat and bond with people. And she ended up feeling like, well, there's too much kind of forced sociability. I don't have to be friends with absolutely everybody that I cross paths with. And after a certain point, I mean, it was a pretty strong suggestion that you just not have a continuous relationship with a person, that you weren't supposed to sleep with the yes. same person. Yeah, not uh, only did you have to break off ties with your own family, which in some cases could be quite devastating. You know, a young painter whom came into the group, also from Bennington, whom I interviewed, her mother got sick with fatal cancer, and her family was begging her to come home and see her mother. Her therapist said, absolutely not. They're going to suck you back into the family orbit. Hang up on them. Don't answer their calls. She missed her mother's final months and, you know, feels guilty about it to this day. So that was one part. And then, as you say, the other part was 
you know, you were dating multiple people, but there was somebody you really cared about and you wanted to spend more time with, your therapist would begin pressuring you to distance yourself from that person or eventually break off ties with that person because that was sort of called what they called a hostile integration. Mm. You know, what we think of as falling in love, they call the hostile integration. Or you were getting into what they would call a focus. A focus was bad, a romantic focus, because it was essentially based on this illusion that there was this one person that could make you happy and that was a silly illusion. It becomes known as a free love community, but also people are, as it goes on, basically living in sex-segregated collective environments. Was there a gay aspect of it? What was their take on homosexuality? Interestingly, they were slightly more open about homosexuality than the prevailing culture in the 50s and 60s. You know, Saul Newton was definitely a heterosexual kind of macho guy and who basically conveyed the idea that heterosexual sex was better than homosexual sex, but there was nothing wrong with a little experimentation. And so sometimes these same-sex chumship dates might turn into opportunity for sexual exploration. But the gay men and gay women who were in the group would tell you that their therapist encouraged them to at least experiment with heterosexual sex. That was considered the better option but you weren't condemned for being gay. And so there were many gay people in the group that found it a pretty okay community to be a part of. The people in the group, the other members were hip younger people who were you know, more or less okay with gay people. So it was a reasonably comfortable environment for gay people to be a part of, but there was a kind of heteronormative default mode. As the Institute evolves through the 60s into the 70s, it becomes more and more codified and restrictive, essentially. And before we go on, what is a summary? So a summary is when your therapist gives you a kind of character analysis and tells you everything that's wrong with you. In the early part of therapy, the focus was on how terrible your parents were and how badly you needed to get away from them. And then at a certain point, the therapy shifted to being well, you think you got off easy, you got through this with these terrible parents and everything is great with you. You've inherited a lot of the traits that they had and you need to face up to those things. And so you would be given a summary. Looking at it from the outside, it's clear that it was a kind of way for therapists to increase their control over their patients. You break a patient down, you convince them that they're shit, you're nothing. And they're being told frequently by their therapists, there's no future for you outside of this therapy. If you even think about leaving us, you will end up an alcoholic, a prostitute, a drug addict, in prison, in a mental hospital, committing suicide. This therapy is the only way forward for you. And so you have to fully come to grips with how rotten you are. Yeah, there's a note in your book, and I gather it's not really clear, about a famous painter who gets a harsh summary from Saul Newton and is, like, begging for approval. That's pretty clearly Kenneth Noland. Yeah, yeah. You know, Noland gave, uh, apparently, a major painting of his to Saul Newton and, you know, something that would be worth hundreds of thousands of dollars even then. And actually, lots of the painters all had really nice abstract expressionist collections from their fancy artist patients and were themselves fairly accomplished amateur. Lots of them took painting classes, the Art Student League and stuff like that, and were pursuing painting in a fairly serious way. The creativity is really important to the group, and the Greenberg Circle, in its particularly in its early life, gives it tons of cachet, you know, brings yeah. in all these creative people. As it gets into the 1970s, it takes a pretty sharp turn towards the political theater. Yeah. It gets increasingly insular and dark and codified. And so in the mid-1970s, some of the creative people in the group are experimenting with putting on their own theater. They form their own little theater company. It's called the Fourth Wall Repertory Theater. And a therapist in the group who has some experience in theater helps them organize this. And they rent out a theater out in Amagansett, and they put on plays. Richard Price writes a skit and performs in one of their things. They then rent the Provincetown Theater in New York City, which is where Eugene O'Neill put on some of his plays back in the day. And this is attracting a lot of enthusiasm from members of the group. And then at a certain point, the leadership of the group see that like a hundred different patients of theirs 
are getting involved in this theater and they think, well, we should be running this show. This is obviously like becoming a kind of counter allegiance within the group. And so rather tragically, what started out as a kind of bottom-up expression of creativity by members of the group gets kind of taken over by the leadership. And so another therapist in the group who becomes Saul Newton's fifth wife, a woman named Joan Harvey, becomes the artistic director. She'd been a soap opera actress and acted in a couple of B-movies. And she takes over, becomes the artistic director of The Fourth Wall. And there basically is pressure on everybody who's in therapy to become members of The Fourth Wall. So suddenly this group that's been rather kind of loosey-goosey and somewhat informal becomes an actual formal membership organization. You have to pay dues to be part of The Fourth Wall. They buy a theater on the Lower East Side. They buy a property up in the Catskills where they can rehearse and hang out in the summer months. They get rid of their houses in the Hamptons. And all this is gonna cost money. They don't just buy a theater, they lay siege to a theater, you know. Uh, it's actually a political action. I mean, I guess maybe we should maybe stress that this is a, still a therapeutic group, now a theater group, but also considered itself a revolutionary organization. Yeah, so Saul Newton is a communist, and a lot of the therapists that he brings into it adhere to a kind of basic Marxist position. A lot of the people in therapy are not necessarily apolitical, but they're all kind of in the left. They were involved in anti-war protests during the Vietnam War and so on. And now the politics of it become much more overt and much more explicit. And so Saul Newton is imagining that by taking over this theater, which they've rented, but the previous occupants don't want to vacate. So they literally force them out physically. And this is kind of, for Saul Newton, an action that shows that the group is getting tough, is prepared to stand up to the police, prepared to do kind of serious work that is part of the curriculum of a young revolutionary. They begin referring to their group as a kind of political vanguard. And so in their way of thinking, the only way you're really going to change society is if you change the people in society. So first you're working on breaking up the family, and changing the individual, and then you're working on changing society itself. In 1979, there is an accident at the nuclear reactor in Three Mile Island down in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. And the people in the group, the leadership, are convinced that this accident is much more serious than what officials are telling us, that a nuclear cloud may be heading toward New York. The entire group vacate and go down to Orlando, Florida and take over uh, Howard Johnson's motel. And this becomes a kind of another milestone in the group's evolution toward an increasingly paranoid and insular trend. So that after Three Mile Island, they set up a food co-op and the idea is you can't eat any food that's been grown in the Northeast or manufactured in the Northeast of the United States because it might be contaminated. They set up a kind of 24-hour radio monitoring service where all the people in the group have to stay up all night and listen to two different radio stations to see whether there might be news about a nuclear leak. They have physicists in the group who rig up monitoring technology so that people drive from four or five different nuclear plants that are around the northeast of the United States and monitor the radiation levels near these plants. So this whole kind of new focus in the group in which, A, this is a dues-paying group that you are a part of, you're either in it or you're out of it, and two, you've adopted a kind of us-against-the-world attitude. They participate in a lot of kind of anti-nuclear demonstrations. Their rock bands play at these demonstrations. They make up plays about their kind of anti-nuke, anti-capitalist plays at their theater. It becomes much more of a kind of group activity and much less about individual therapy. Even in the midst of all this, they're still primarily known as a theater group. They consider themselves in the heritage of Bertolt Brecht and are doing consciousness-raising theater. I gathered a very small crowds, like plays like a, sort of a, their version of, of The Wizard of Oz, The Wizard of Wall Street. Esther Newton, there's a quote in your book, the Saul Newton's daughter, says that the fourth wall theater combined the worst of Marxism, psychoanalysis, and musical theater, which is yeah. quite a quote. Her wife, Holly, K. 
came up with that and Esther likes to repeat it. So I think that's kind of true. The group became much more controlling in the late 70s and in the early 80s. And the other thing that you have happening during this period is you have a lot of women who joined this group in the late 60s and early 70s right. when they're in their early 20s. And by the early 80s, these women are in their mid and upper 30s. And if they ever want to think about having a child, they realize it has to happen now or very soon. And the group in the early days were sending young kids away to boarding school when patients had children of their own. But in 1976, Dee Dee Agee, who was one of the daughters of the writer James Agee, lost custody of her child because she'd sent her child away to boarding school at the age of five. And her husband, interestingly, who is the artist Bill Bollinger. Yeah, very important post-minimalist artist in that time, yeah. Exactly. So Bill Bollinger sues and wins custody of the child they have together. He's not in the group. And so after DDAG loses custody of her kid, they stop sending kids away to boarding school. But then they start doing very weird stuff with kids. So that when DDAG has a second child, she is told by her therapist, you need to have sex with several different men during your ovulation period so that one, you'll get pregnant quickly, and two, we won't know who the father is. So there won't be any of this kind of possessive, this is my kid kind of attitude in the group. And so it's part of their idea of breaking up family. And so some of the women start doing this. The therapists are also, in some cases, reassigning children away from their birth mother and having them raised by other people in the group. And all this is starting to create a lot of tension and complication in the group. And in 1986, a woman who has her first child at the age of 41 is told by her therapist at three months to stop breastfeeding and then told shortly after that she shouldn't see her child at all. You're a smothering, suffocating mother. You're bad for your kid. Stay away from her. And so this woman loses access to her own daughter her daughter is being taken care of by a babysitter who's living on one floor of the building they live in. Her husband is living on another floor. And she's starting to become increasingly desperate, thinking she's not going to see her daughter again. She sees a lawyer who tells her, what you need to do is actually seize physical custody of your daughter. It's not kidnapping if you, as the mother, take the child. And so she hires two bodyguards and literally stakes out the building that she herself is living at 100th Street and Broadway and waits for the babysitter to come out in the morning with the stroller and the child. And the two bodyguards immobilize the babysitter and she grabs the little girl and they jump into a car and they go off into hiding. And that sets off a legal battle. The husband sues for custody. The mother goes to the press and gives a long set of interviews with the Village Voice, which does a cover story called Escape from Utopia. And so the whole thing blows open. This group that's existed in secret, effectively, there's been almost no coverage at all of this group from the mid-50s until the mid-80s. And suddenly, people begin hearing about this really weird, unusual therapy where couples are being broken up, children are being taken away from their parents, and so forth, and their lives controlled to an extraordinary degree by their therapists. And so by now, the group is divided by these lawsuits. Several other former members of the group sue, and the whole thing begins to fall apart. By now, Saul Newton is more than 80 years old and beginning to lose it mentally. And so the group begins to really collapse in the late 80s and dissolves in 1991. Yeah, what started out as this experiment in sexual liberation ends with yeah, extremely dark charges of sexual coercion, including from Ralph Klein, Greenberg's former therapist, who was one of the so-called gang of four, the four people who were at the top of this pyramid by this experiment in communal living, you know, ended up becoming quite hierarchical at the end. And there's a lot of... Uh, ugly stuff in the back half of the book. Yeah, a lot of the therapists routinely violated the normal kind of ethical boundaries that are supposed to regulate the relationship between therapist and patient. And there was a lot of kind of financial exploitation at this point because 
they had this theater and because Joan Harvey began producing a number of sort of documentary films of a kind of anti-nuclear nature, they were hitting up their patients for money. People who had cut off their parents were now encouraged to get back in touch with their parents to try to touch them up for money. The whole thing acquired a much more kind of exploitative quality as one of the main characters in my book who was a patient and then a therapist in the group said, I joined a movement and discovered it was a business and then turned into a racket. And so there were a lot of defections. People like that began getting out because they were having a harder and harder time justifying the things they were doing to their patients, breaking up relationships of people who wanted to have children together, who cared about each other, you know, encouraging people to give money to the group and things like that, that were obviously a total variance with any kind of ethical norm for a therapist. Yeah. And in a sort of irony, because a lot of the Slovenian therapists weren't licensed therapists, that becomes a way that a lot of this comes out because some of this would be protected by just the norms of uh, professional practice if they were licensed therapists. Yeah. Well, what does happen is that after the publicity of the 1986 period, the Office of Professional Practice in the state of New York opens a series of investigations. Some of the people who've been patients file official complaints with the board. And so a number of the therapists are licensed. And so four of the therapists are placed under investigation and eventually lose their license, including Ralph Klein, Clement Greenberg, and Jackson Pollock's therapist. Officially, he renounces his license, but he was obviously about to lose it because his investigation was already very far along. The two therapists that fought the battle all the way to end both lost their licenses. So four of the leading therapists lose their license. Uh, Saul Newton didn't have a license to lose, and by 1991, he dies. So it was a moot point. So I feel like we've barely scratched the surface of this book in a way people should pick it up because there's a lot in this story and really an interesting slice of a much larger history of the 60s and 70s. Alexander Stiller, thank you so much for talking to me. The book is The Sullivanians, Sex, Psychotherapy, and the Wildlife of an American Commune. Thank you. That's it for this week's episode. If you like what you've heard, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Also, please take a moment to rate and review us. It's a small thing, but it helps other listeners discover our show, and that really helps us out. The Art Angle is produced by Sonia Manalili and Caroline Goldstein. Thanks for listening. See you next week.